Well, hey guys, thank you for joining the daily Bible study. I appreciate your time and I pray that this is a blessing to you. Uh, before I get going in today's study, I just want to do a quick recap just so that we're all on the same page. Uh, Pastor Chris discussed this in yesterday's Bible study. Uh, our strategy for how to teach through Romans is on Sunday, we're going to cover the major themes of this book. So Romans is one of, I, in my opinion, it's besides the Gospels, it is the greatest book ever written. It is theologically rich. It's a book that can be studied for years upon years. Uh, if we wanted to, we could go verse by verse and break down portions of a verse, and that study would take us decades. Uh, just assuming that we were doing 52 weeks a year, it could take decades to do. That's not our strategy. And, and, and when I say that, I'm not saying one is good, one is bad, one is better, one's worse. It, they're just different strategies. For us, we're going to cover the major themes on Sunday so that we can, when we get done with this 20 plus week study, we will have a really comprehensive understanding of the message that Paul was communicating through Romans. But during the week, we're going to go deeper. Uh, as best we're able, we're going to go verse by verse. That way we're not missing anything and you can go deeper in your Bible study. So we really feel like this next 20 weeks is going to be a comprehensive study because we're going to utilize not only Sunday, but then the three days during the week that we do the Bible study. So Pastor Chris did the opening to the book of Romans, giving you a preview of what the book is about, the authorship and, and all of the important details. Today, I'm going to look at verses one through seven. In tomorrow's study, I'm going to look at verses eight through 17. And so there'll be some overlap. So on Sunday, when I began the series, I focused on verse one and then verses 16 and 17. And so today's study, we'll have a little overlap. Tomorrow's study, we'll have a little bit of an overlap. So I'm just gonna go verse by verse. And what I'm gonna do is share one verse and then I'm gonna give you some thoughts about it. Uh, for some of you, it will be uh, deeper than you imagine. For some of you, it will not be as deep as you would want. And uh, But I hope we'll find a happy medium in the middle. All right, so let's just begin. And this is the overlap because I talked about this on Sunday and I'll still talk about today just so that we're all on the same page. Uh, the author, Paul, begins by introducing himself and then really setting the foundation of his testimony. He says, Saul, or Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And what Paul is sharing is actually in the reverse chronological order. Uh, he's talking about where he is currently and the reason why. So where he is currently is he is a servant of Christ Jesus. And this is critically important to understand because when we're introduced to Paul initially in Scripture in the book of Acts, uh, and his, he would, went by his Hebrew name, the name of Saul, he was not a servant of Christ Jesus. He was an enemy of Christ Jesus. And, and I don't mean that in a general term for those who are not saved are enemies of God, which is very true. I'm talking about he actually was setting himself up in opposition to Jesus Christ. So he was not a servant of Christ Jesus. He believed he was a false prophet. He was resisting the movement of those who followed Jesus. And so we see this radical transformation. And the reason why I want to point that out is this is uh, an evidence of the, uh, the reality of who Jesus is and the message of his resurrection. Uh, we sometimes need just encouragement for our faith, and this is a simple statement that should give you encouragement for your faith. Why? 
because of who Saul was. Saul was not an uneducated man. He's not a man who was deceived. He was a strict follower of Judaism to the point where he was a Pharisee. He was actually a religious leader that instructed others on how to understand the law of God. He understood prophecies. He understood the law of God. He, he even in his own testimony, he strictly followed Judaism. So he, this was not a, a casual observer. This wasn't a weak believer he was very secure in his beliefs, and so he would not be one that would be easily deceived. Literally, literally, from his perspective and his testimony, there's only one thing that could have changed his mind. So he thought Jesus was a false prophet. The one thing that could change his mind to turn him from an enemy of Christ Jesus to a servant of Christ Jesus is he met the resurrected Jesus. He knew Jesus had been crucified, but when he met the resurrected Jesus in the account in Acts on the way to Damascus, this changed everything because all of a sudden he realized everything was true. This obviously softened his heart. So then when Christ ministered to him and guided him and basically taught him, his, minds were, his mind was open to all the prophecies that he already knew. He now saw the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and this radically changed his life. So if you ever wonder like, man, is this like made up stuff? Like, should I really believe it? Allow t uh, uh, Paul's testimony to become your testimony because this is a, a proof and evidence for our faith. So he says, this is who he currently is, is a servant of Christ Jesus. And then he goes back and says, but I was called to be an apostle. He specifically was. Uh, not necessarily that all of us are called to be apostles, but he was. Yeah, he really became, so you can debate this. Uh, this is just my opinion. So I could be wrong on this. This isn't foundational to belief. But when Judas, when he committed suicide and was no longer a part of the 12, there was 11, uh, we know from scripture that the 12 apostles would sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel, that they're going to have a, a unique and special place in heaven uh, because of their service. At the beginning of Acts, I, I, I'm almost positive, I don't, maybe it's the end of Luke but, or the beginning of Acts, my, my memory right now is failing. Um, the apostles knew that and so they wanted to have a 12th and so they cast lots and they chose Matthias. That's the last time Matthias's name is mentioned. In my opinion, the 12th apostle, from God's perspective, most likely would have been Paul. And, and so he, he's called to be apostle, but that's just, again, that's just a theory. That's just a free nugget. I could be wrong. Uh, but with that, he was called to be in a unique position of authority in his instruction. And why? Because he was set apart for the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is that good news story that we are sinners, that we are broken, powerless to change our situation, but God has compassion on us. It's not simply that he forgets our sin. It's that he takes our sin or took our sin and he punished it on Jesus. Jesus took our place. Jesus was not, this was not inflicted upon him in the sense he had no choice. He willfully, even you could say joyfully, took this position because of what he knew it would do, that it would redeem us to be back in a relationship with God. Uh, and so he says, I am set apart because of this good news. This is the purpose of my life to go out to, to, sh to share this message so that others can be saved. And then basically through the next few verses, he just kind of lays out the gospel message uh, by just kind of highlighting some of the major parts of it. Uh, verse two, he says, uh, so this is all one sentence, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. And I apologize, I did not put the first uh, slide up, so let me just do that. But again, we, we taught that on Sunday. You should, you should have that memorized by now because I know you've listened to that sermon three or four times, and so you should really know that. Uh, but let's go to verse two. So he goes on and says, which 
he promised beforehand through the, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was always God's plan to redeem man through Jesus. So from the very beginning, so if you wanted to hop in your Bible and go back to the very beginning, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, it gives us the account of the fall of man, that Adam and Eve were given an option to trust God and walk in obedience or to distrust God, but they would face the consequence of that, which would be death. Uh, death would impact every single element. It would impact their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, even the condition of humanity, the condition of creation. Everything would suffer. Uh, the reason why now we have hurricanes and tornadoes and storms and, and we have droughts and, the, and crops have bugs and viruses and we have sickness in our body, all of that is a direct relation to sin. Sin destroyed and mutated our bodies and creation. So what it says in Romans 8, that even now all of creation groans, it longs for the redemption. Um, so we, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, this moment of the fall where Adam and Eve chose to distrust God, to eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, when God speaks out the judgment on them, God is actually the first prophet to speak redemption. So when we have the passage like this where it says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the first prophetic voice actually came from God. When he was announcing the judgment on the serpent, Satan, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And he says this in verse 15, this is chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's not talking about the literal serpent. He's talking about this in the spiritual realm. That all of the, those who follow Satan, his offspring, those, even I would say those who are deceived in humanity, there would be constant tension between them and physical humanity and, and those who want to follow God. But he's also speaking about this specifically and prophetically about Jesus becoming man, which we'll look at in just a moment. And he says, so he'll put this enmity between them and then talking about her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he's talking about Jesus there, that Jesus would come and that there would be this moment where, where Satan would have perceived victory in the crucifixion of Jesus. And Satan actually thought he won in that moment in his arrogance and ignorance, thought he won because he inflicted this pain upon Jesus, the death upon Jesus. But we know that in the resurrection, it conquered and crushed the head of Satan and his plan because it, he then lost the power to all those who believe in Jesus. And so he's just saying this is always God's plan. So from that moment of sin, God didn't forgive, forget us and give up on us. God instead launched this incredible plan of redemption that he knew. So think about this. He knew where it would ultimately end. So I have one more theory for you. I believe in the Old Testament, there's multiple examples of God taking the form of, of creation, of a person. And, and you'll see these different times where he encountered people and they began to worship and he received that worship. That's the only example of God in the flesh because when it was an angel, they would stop him and say, don't worship me, I'm not, I'm not holy, I'm not, an, I'm not God. And so we know God was in the flesh in different times. I believe that was Christ, who is Jesus, in took form in that in that moment i believe in genesis in the account of god walking in the garden looking for adam and eve was christ taking the form of a person i don't think it was a permanent form but i think it was a form he took to interact with humanity so i believe even in this moment this could have been christ in 
in human form, talking to them, pronouncing judgment, and in that moment prophesying about his own sacrifice, what he would do thousands of years later to redeem humanity, which is just a, a powerful image. But it was God's plan all along. So let's go on. He, he says in verse 3, and I just to make sure that I don't uh, go on for 45 minutes and preach you another sermon. Uh, he says this in verse 3. So he prophesied beforehand concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. This is a critical truth, a, cri a critical theology you need to understand, that what he's illustrating here is that Jesus was truly a man in that moment. So let me pause. So who was Jesus? Jesus in heaven was Christ. Christ is a, another way of saying the Messiah. The Messiah was God, who God prophesied that there would be a Messiah who would come and save. This is Christ. Now, Christ is fully God. All things were created by him, for him, through him. Um, he is a part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, who is Christ, God the Holy Spirit. But he took the form of humanity. And while he was here on earth, those 30 plus years, he was fully man in the sense that he limited his Godhead in the sense of, or his Godness, in the sense of he limited what, like, what he would know, his powers, so that he could fully experience humanity. And so he was fully God. The reason why this matters is he was able to experience then every single thing that we experience. We, we just know from the scriptures he was tempted in every way like us. So every evil temptation that that draws us he had to wrestle with that too um, he, he faced emotional responses to things when when uh, his heart was broken at times Lazarus when he died and he saw the brokenness of humanity as everyone grieved he wept it, it, it stirred his heart when he looked over Jerusalem and he knew that they missed the vast majority of them missed the encounter of God of, of him who he was he wept over Jerusalem he felt the betrayal of friends as they turned against him. He felt loneliness. Um, he, he felt stress. Um, so we, we need to understand that. In the garden, I mean, he was sweating drops of blood. And, and he, he felt the tension of knowing what God wanted, but also wrestling with it of maybe not wanting to do it. And that, I know it's kind of hard to hear because you think like I, sometimes we paint this picture that Jesus just floated through the world. He didn't. He, he said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. But if not, your will be done. So he felt all the tension, but he also honored what God wished for him. So he was fully man. But then the next verse, verse 4, it says, And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So not only was he fully man, but he was fully God. And, and we don't fully understand that in the sense that as we say this, we have to acknowledge this truth. There are elements about God. That he's just dynamic. He's dynamic in a way that human brains can't understand. Uh, he is, so even the fact that he is three in one, he, he's three separate beings in the sense of three personalities, three beings, but yet he's one being. So there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, yet they're one, one God. And then even within that, God the Son is fully God, fully man. And like, so our brains go like, what? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, but we just have to go, okay, that's because God is so dynamic, we can't get our minds around him. That's why it's so arrogant in our culture that for scientists, because they can't prove or disprove God, they simply reject him because they're trying to put their brains completely around deity, which is just so dumb when you think about it. 
if you can fully understand a God, isn't he no longer God because you'd be greater than him? So God is just, he's dynamic. We don't fully understand, but he's fully God, fully man. In verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And what Paul is declaring, so this is verse five. Sorry, I'll do better with that for those that are watching versus those that are listening. He says in this that, in this moment, he says, we have received grace, okay? This is the foundation. He, he's acknowledging it, all of us. We, we've received grace. Th- this is what God has given us that allows us to be in relationship with God. We didn't earn it. He gave it to us. We put our faith in him. But then he goes on and also is dis- discussing his personal calling of apostleship, but then also his purpose. So when we are saved, we are then called. All of our callings will be different. Uh, for the vast majority of you, your calling is going to look different than mine. I have a calling to be a lead pastor, specifically the lead pastor of the tree church. So none of us will have the same calling in that sense until God either uh, removes me or takes me to heaven. Uh, So we're not going to have that same calling. We have different callings, uh, just as powerful, equally important, just different. And so we have different callings, but all of that, so we have grace that allows us to be called, then we are called, but all of that leads to the same purpose. All of us have the same purpose. It's to lift up the name of Jesus, not just simply to give him glory, though that's the the main win of our calling. We want him to receive glory. We want him to be honored. But the reason why this is so important is that when God, when he is lifted up, when Jesus receives glory and honor, it is through that process that people are drawn to him so that they can be saved. His heart, the heart of God, is so loving that he wants even the glory that he receives to be the purpose of the redemption of man that's how loving he is. That's how committed to our betterment he is. And so Paul goes, just acknowledge it. We receive grace, which makes us also to receive our calling, but our calling is for the same purpose, that his name be lifted high so that others can be drawn to him. Then in verse six, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he's saying not just the apostles, he's writing to believers in Rome, not just the apostles. This isn't something unique to us. This is for all of you, everyone that I'm writing to, that you also know that you have the same thing. You have grace that gives you your calling for the exact same purpose, that Christ may be lifted high. And then he gives his final, in this opening, his final greeting to them in verse 7. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. What a beautiful image. To all of you that I'm speaking to now that are loved by God and called to be saints, uh, this is our hope. Our hope is in the grace of Jesus. Our hope is in him and him alone. And when we understand that, we will experience deeper and deeper levels of life. So that's the breakdown of verses one through seven. Tomorrow we will go through verses eight through 17. I pray that this was a blessing to you, and I would encourage you, if it is, then whether it be through the video that you can share on social media or let people know about the podcast, if that's how you're listening to it. God bless you all. I love you, and I hope if you're a part of our church, I'll get to see you soon on a Sunday. God bless.